Hey, thanks for connecting in with us on the Mountain Park Church podcast. My name is Andrew. It's an honor uh, to spend some time with you this week. I have a few things that I want to say at the very end of this message, so stick around for that. In the meantime, we are in our fourth, I think it's our fourth week in the book of Revelation, covering chapters four and five. So without any further ado, let's dive right into that. So as we uh, just process through, this is where things start to get interesting and weird and all kinds of stuff starts happening that is hard to grasp sometimes. But I just want to do a quick review of sort of where we've been so far. And again, that word, you've heard me use it even in prayer today. Uh, The word revelation in our English comes from the Greek word apocalypse, which doesn't mean really bad things happening. Apocalypse means unveiling or uncovering. And so what Jesus is doing here uh, for not only John and the seven churches he's writing to in Asia Minor, but for all of us, he's unveiling the stuff upstairs. And so I want to uh, just put a, a concept into your mind as we walk through the rest of this book There are two dimensions that are going on in this book. There's the upstairs and the downstairs. The upstairs is what's happening in heavenly places. The downstairs is what's happening here on earth. And so this book is shifting between upstairs and downstairs, upstairs and downstairs. But what uh, God is doing in this book is unveiling the present reality of what is happening in heaven right now in light of what's happening on the earth here. What's happening upstairs right now in light of what we're walking through downstairs. This book is also going to speak to the reality upstairs of the future, what's about to happen in light of what's going on downstairs. And so John, uh, through this vision that Jesus is giving him, is shifting up and down, up and down. And it can be a little bit confusing to get things sorted out, but that's the essence of what is happening here. There are things, um, as we'll learn in, in this, and we talked about this years ago when we studied Ephesians, the things that happen upstairs impact our world downstairs. The two are not disconnected. As much as we want to believe in our post-enlightenment, humanist, naturalistic way of thinking that reality is what I can feel and touch and see and hear and experience, and that reality is totally disconnected from anything spiritual, if there is one at all, what Scripture teaches us and what John begins to recognize and what Jesus is pointing out is the stuff going on upstairs impacts how we live downstairs and what we experience downstairs and vice versa. That we have an ability to access the very throne room of God and the things that we pray downstairs here can impact what happens upstairs. 
which then impacts what happens downstairs, if you get my drift. This uh, chapter four is the opening to the second window of this book. And here's how I want to describe this for you. In chapters one to three, we've had the first window, okay, so apocalypse and opening up of a window. Um, we've had the first window opened. And in that first window, we saw Jesus in his upstairs reality as present in the middle of what's going on on earth today. He's in the middle of the seven lampstands, remember. So the first window that John gets a view through is, wait a minute, things aren't always the way they seem on the earth around me. In fact, Jesus is present in the middle of everything going on on the earth today. He's not disconnected. He's not far off and aloof. The first window that John has opened for him is this reality that things aren't always what they seem. And Jesus is present and at work even right now, even when I can't see him or feel him or understand it or experience it in my senses. Window number one began to show us the reality of Jesus as being present here. Window number two starts in chapter four. And I wanna just note, um, there are going to be several sort of windows that are opened, but Revelation is not written chronologically. So it's really important to understand. Revelation is not written chronologically. It's jumping all over the place, past, present, future, uh, you know, here on the earth, up in heaven. And uh, so we need to guard ourselves against trying to read it chronologically because it's not happening chronologically. The windows that John are seeing would be sort of kind of like um, the windows on your computer. So who are the people here? And you know who you are. You've got a thousand things on your desktop. You do, you can't even see the beautiful image behind it because you just got so many windows open and you've got 64 websites open because you're too lazy to go back and Google them. So you just leave them open and you've got like your whole computer when you open it, it's like 32 layers of windows, right? Who's that person, right? Okay, we have inner healing for you later after the service. But what's going on here is not this chronological, like A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D. That's not what's happening. Picture this like a desktop, and Jesus is opening and moving different windows into view for John. He's bringing different things into the forefront. And so window one was the reality that things aren't always as they seem, and Jesus is present in the middle of his people. He's walking with you and I today. Window two is going to be the upstairs. So window one is downstairs. Window two is upstairs. And what's happening in heavenly places. We're just going to walk through again. Like I've mentioned, this is a survey, so we're not able to tackle each verse um, on its own. I want to note here this word behold that's found over and over and over again in this book is not just a passive sort of, oh look, 
<laughs> oh, look, John. If you've got a minute, John, you know, when you're free, just gaze over this way. That's not what behold is. Behold is a verb, and it's literally, look, it's a command. Get your eyes off of that other stuff and look because I have something to show you. Fix your attention on me. And this is going to be the repeated invitation of Jesus throughout this whole book. It's not just kind of, oh, look, I'm here and everything's going to be okay. No, look. Look. And John is commanded now to look. I want to note, too, that when he does look, he sees a door open for him. What's really important to grasp is that this door is not up there somewhere. This door is right in front of him. The reality of the spiritual realm and heavenly places is such that it is pressing in against us even here right now. The kingdom of heaven is not out past Jupiter and Pluter, not Pluter, okay. <laughs> well, if there's any teachers here, I'm just so embarrassed right now, I'm sorry. But um, it's not out past all those planets. <laughs> galaxies and solar systems, the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual realm is actually pressing in against us right now. The, I'm really sad to use this analogy, but I can't think of a better one. It's like stranger things. It's the reality that it's right here. And the question we have to face is whether we're actually living with this, uh, with this understanding that heaven isn't like and God is not like somewhere to be grasped out there. He's right here. He's near and he's close. The problem is often we're not looking. We're not interested even half of the time. And so this door opens and he doesn't see what's happening on the earth as he did with Jesus in the first few chapters. He sees what is now happening in the throne room. That throne room is the dominant visual image of this whole book. 47 times the throne is mentioned in this book, and it's alluded to 77 more times. So what we're seeing here, what John is seeing, is the dominant image of the whole book of Revelation. And again, remember, John is writing to real people who are undergoing real suffering and real persecution and real hardship and real trial. And what he is expressing, what Jesus is expressing is there is a throne room and that throne room has a throne and that throne is occupied. It's not up for grabs. It's not empty. It's not who wants it today. Which kingdom is ruling on the earth today? Which Caesar is in charge today? Which government has most control and authority today? Which empire is ruling on the earth today? Hundreds of empires have risen and fallen, but one person has occupied the throne all through history. And what God is showing John through this throne that is occupied 
He's giving him a picture in the midst, John, of your confusion, in the midst of being disoriented, in the midst of kingdoms rising and falling. And we, I believe, are in a moment where we are seeing now and we will see the falling of our Western kingdoms. We will. Every kingdom rises and falls. Jesus didn't come to save an earthly kingdom, by the way. Jesus didn't come to make America great again, by the way. I'm sorry, I'm not being disrespectful, it's just true. Every kingdom rises and falls. And if we get swept into the comings and goings of earthly kingdoms, we're always gonna be disoriented and we're gonna be put in this washing machine of confusion and frustration because we're trying to look for the kingdom of God amongst the kingdoms of the earth and he doesn't reside there. His throne is secure. It's been occupied. And he's someone that we can trust even when things on the earth are going sideways really fast. Today and in the future, we are, I believe, living in an in-between moment. What some scholars call a gray zone. We're, we're watching the, the institutions that we've trusted in that have led us, especially post-World War II, the places that have given us peace and comfort and security and rest are beginning to crumble. The American evangelical church is crumbling. I don't know if you've noticed that. If your hope is in a Christian leader or a Christian university or a Christian institution, you're in for a rough ride. These things are crumbling. We're in the midst of this gray moment, this gray zone moment, where we are living through this kind of contraction on the earth. And the word of Jesus to John in his similar moment, and it is to us now, is there is one who sits on the throne and he can be trusted. He is sovereign. He is ruling, and he's not disconnected. We're not deists here. We don't believe that God created the earth, kicked it out somewhere, and that the earth is just only operating on its natural functions and rhythms. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God is involved in. Jesus is present today. And what Jesus is bringing John to and what he wants to bring us to is this living reality that in the midst of the confusion of the world around us, in the midst of the crumbling kind of infrastructures and institutions that we've placed so much trust in, that there is one who is worth more of our trust. As a side note, these institutions and the reason that our world is in basically global hyperventilation panic mode <laughs> is because these institutions, whether it's financial institutions, whether it's religious institutions, whether it is government institutions, whether it's health care institutions, these institutions have served in my generation my parents, my grandparents' generation as places to absorb my anxiety and our collective cultural fear. 
Just think about this for a minute. And this might help you actually a lot in kind of assessing where everything is. These institutions that we've grown up and lived with and placed our trust in have absorbed our cultural fear and anxiety. Well, I don't need to worry about that because we have a medical system that will take care of that. They're, they're working for my good, not my harm. And all of a sudden, in two years, that has been eroded. And regardless of where you stand on your spectrum of belief, whether you are on one side or the other, your trust in the system has taken a hit. That system, our, our health system, our government system, democracy even, is no longer absorbing the collective anxiety and fear of culture. So what happens? If I can't trust in the places I've always trusted, that is now placed back on me and we have a world with billions of people who have nowhere to express their fear about the unknown of the future. And so that is resulting in this sort of tsunami of anxiousness and worry and fear and dread. And it's expressing itself in anger, impatience, vitriol. It's expressing itself in tribalism like never before. That's what's happening, I think. And Jesus, through this, that's why this book is more applicable or as applicable today as it ever has been. Because what Jesus is saying to John is, John, you never could really trust in those things anyway. But there's a throne, and that throne is occupied. The one who sits on it, he's described, notice how John describes him, and he says he had the appearance of, meaning he can't even describe with words what he's looking at. There's an old English word for this. It's called ineffable, meaning I can't put into words what I'm seeing right now. But these gemstones that he's describing, jasper and carnelian, are a reddish-yellow hue. And he's trying to give this picture of this radiating eminence of light. There's no darkness or confusion around the throne. There's no fear or threat. There's no terror of night around the throne. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones with elders on them. And you can go into other texts of scripture. We won't have time today to do that. First Kings 22, 19, if you wanna jot that down. That's a vision that a prophet in the Old Testament had where God called his heavenly court into session, his council into session. These 24 elders that are around this throne are symbolic of a royal court. They're also symbolic of priestly authority. How they're described, what they're wearing is symbolic of a, a priest's garment, a priest that serves in the royal court of God. We don't know exactly, again, we're talking about stuff that we really don't know anything about, but we don't know exactly what they represent or exactly what their function is. There's many different ideas um, 
A couple of them could be they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so before the cross and represent the 12 disciples. So pre and post cross, that's one of the interpretations of this, that they represent the totality of God at work before Jesus and after Jesus. Some also believe they could represent the 24 courses of priestly service. So in the temple system that John would have been familiar with that he was writing in the midst of, there were 24 sort of shifts of priests who served at the temple. It could be any of those things. John goes on to describe seven torches of fire. The Again, numbers have great symbolism in this book. The seven torches of fire representing the seven spirits of God is not saying that God has seven spirits. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit is present. The fullness of the Spirit of God is at work and is present. Again, can you imagine you're, you're John, you're exiled on this island of Patmos. You're in a you're, you're a political troublemaker because of your worship of God. And what God begins to show you is not only Jesus at work in the midst of the stuff you're walking through, he shows you this throne and this throne is occupied and the fullness of the spirit of God is found there. The, the very fullness of God himself is found in that place. I wanna make a note too, because this is gonna come up over and over, this sea of glass that is before the throne. Again, we, this is hard because we're not first century uh, Jews sitting here uh, today. So we would quickly miss the symbolism here. But all through scripture, the sea, so I want you to hear this, from Genesis 1 to the very last chapter of Scripture, the sea symbolizes evil and suffering and torment. The sea, for those people that John was writing to, this would not have been lost on them. The sea was a metaphor for or a symbol for the chaos that comes with evil. That's what the sea is a symbol for. Later on in the book, when it describes the new heaven and the new earth and it says there was no sea, it's not saying there's not gonna be water. It's, seeing, it's saying the reality of evil, the destructive, chaotic power of evil has been fully dealt with. If you love scuba diving, surfing, swimming, all of those things, don't worry. In heaven, you're not gonna be staring at a desert in front of you where there once was an ocean and going, why is there no more sea? That's not what he means. The sea here uh, before Jesus, it, what's interesting is that we're not at the end of Revelation yet, so the sea is still present. But in the presence of the one who sits on the throne, all chaos, all evil, all, uh, all of the forces of satanic rule and reign have to come to peace. The throne of God is not surrounded by chaos and confusion. Even those things 
that caused disorder all over the earth have to come into order before the throne. They're still present, notice here. They're still there, but before the throne, there is no darkness, there is no chaos, there is no confusion, there's no triumphing of evil, and that's what I believe Jesus is trying to get across to John that Satan and his kingdom, because of what Jesus has done, Satan and his kingdom have been brought under the authority of the throne. So even though on the earth right now, you know, you could say in a very real way, all hell is breaking loose everywhere. It's not running rampant. It's not... Uh, exercising its own volition to meet its own needs. I heard one, one uh, scholar say this week in a class I was in, you know, we, we look at the evil around us. We look at the chaos and the hurting and the suffering and the violence and all, like the torment and the brokenness and the carnage going on on the earth today. And we go, God, where are you? Like, that's a legitimate question. And this professor I was sitting under this week said, we have no idea what God is withholding, what he's holding back on the earth around us. As hard as it gets, as, as violent as we feel this conflict, as, as real as it is for all of us in our own lives and on the earth, we have no idea what God is in fact restraining if God was not at work restraining evil right now, it would be a bloodbath everywhere all the time. If God was not at work restraining evil, bringing it under his authority, even now, even though it's present, we, we would have no, there would be no hope. There would be all suffering, all pain, all death all chaos and confusion. There would be nothing that is good. And so we need to be careful. And what Jesus is pointing out to John is you need to be careful when you view reality through your own pain and through your own suffering. Yes, it's, it's real and it's heartbreaking. It's painful, yes. But God is still on the throne. And he has brought evil under the authority of the throne even for now. There's one day where, as we get to the end of Revelation, where God says evil won't even exist anymore. There will be no sea. But the sea metaphor for John and these people was one graphically, uh, graphically understood because in the religions around John, Canaanites believed in the sea monster Leviathan. That's where Leviathan comes from. They believe in Leviathan. The other cultures believed in the sea monster's behemoth. And we're gonna walk into these guys in the rest of Revelation. And these are symbols. They're, they're visual symbolization of the power and destructive forces of the kingdom of darkness on the earth. But all of those are brought under the authority and lordship of Jesus one day. And so even though the seas may rage and roar right now, what does scripture say? 
Even when the waves rise, God raises a rampart so that we can stand above it. When you think of the sea in this term, think of the times where Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and the storms on the seas kicked up. What would, have, what would his disciples have thought? We're in spiritual battle here. What happened before Jesus went to, uh, to set free the demoniac? That was the first cross-cultural mission trip of Jesus outside of the boundaries of Israel. He's going across and he's about to establish the kingdom of God outside of Israel. And what happens? A violent storm rises up on the sea before he has a chance to get there. What does he do? He rebukes the sea. He rebukes the power of the enemy and then goes to confront the principalities that are over that region. When you start to understand this, all of these things come to life again. We find these sea monsters and other apocalyptic literature. We won't get into it. But that's what's going on with that sea of glass. If we keep moving through, we're introduced to four living creatures. Again, I mean, we're like, I don't care how smart you are. You're just speculating at uh, this. But I think the, the most plausible to me is that these are a representation of all creation. One scholar specifically said the most regal and powerful of God's creation are represented before him. Again, that all creation is under the throne and around the throne. All creation serves the purposes of God. Again, we're not deists here. We don't believe that God created the earth, then kicked it out into the universe, and then is sitting back and just letting the earth run on all of its naturalistic environmental functions. That's not what we believe. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God is Lord over all of his creation even. And these four living creatures represent the majesty and power of God's creation that is worshiping him, that, that actually falls in humility before the throne and expresses adoration to God before the throne. when it talks about them being full of eyes, again, we have to understand the, the, the deep symbolism here. I believe what John is trying to express with this, what Jesus is trying to uncover for John, is that God is present and he sees all that is going on. Nothing escapes him. Nothing in your life that you've walked through has gone unnoticed by God. Nothing going on on the earth today is unnoticed by God. As much as we can cry, God, where are you? What's happening? How could you let these things happen? All of it is under his gaze. These powerful and majestic living creatures, living beings, these 24 elders give their life to declaring holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is a statement by Jesus that everything, everything, heavenly or on the earth, has been made to give God glory. And here's where we come to a, a violent confrontation that's not new to our culture. We're certainly walking in it. It's not new to the human race. We come here to this violent confrontation that started with Satan wanting glory above God's rule and reign. We come to this violent confrontation that we are not the center of the universe. That our lives are not worthy of praise and glory and adoration. I think this is even, and I wanna be very careful here, I think this is even expressed in our current culture's demand that I don't need to honor the way that God made me. I, in fact, have the authority to declare who I am, what I am, and what I will be. I have the authority to declare before God and before the world, I am the highest authority. I don't honor God, I don't give him glory. I am the one who determines who I am. Again, I wanna be very careful here but this, I believe, is the undercurrent, the, the spiritual atmosphere and undercurrent that is pervading the world today that says, I, I am the one who determines. No one else, nothing else. Not biology, not psychology, not scripture, for sure not scripture. No one else around me can tell me anything. I am the arbiter of truth. And this is an affront it is a direct attack to the sovereignty and the goodness and the glory of God. We are made in his image. When the image bearer says to the one who made it, I have no use for you or need for you. You have no authority or voice in my life. We undermine, we attack the goodness and glory of God. That's in part, part of what I think is going on behind the scenes in, in that upstairs realm right now. But these powerful and majestic living creatures give their life to express, God, you are the one that's worthy of all glory and honor, not me. So I wanna pause for a question here. What have we, you, me, what have we exalted above Jesus, above God in our own lives? I wrote some things down, and again, I'm not, hear my heart, I'm not attacking, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I told you I was gonna make some of you angry at various times. I, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this, everyone has been angry with me at one point. But as I was just praying through this, what have you exalted above God? 
See, Rome, in John's day, Rome exalted and glorified pleasure. My life exists to bring me pleasure. My body exists to bring me pleasure. Whatever form that takes. Have you exalted pleasure above God? We, I think, in our culture, exalt choice above God. I want you to hear me again. I'm saying this gently, but nowhere in Scripture is freedom ever guaranteed. Nowhere in Scripture is freedom of choice ever promised or guaranteed, and nowhere in Scripture is it exemplified as normative. I think we actually live in an unusual time in history. And in fact, around the world right now, many, many followers of Jesus have no choice. They have no freedom. I've spoken one-on-one with pastors who have been imprisoned in little boxes, four feet high by four feet long by four feet, who have no choice, no freedom, Scripture does not promise freedom. And if you want to use for freedom Christ has set us free, you are butchering the Scriptures because that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we have freedom. In our culture, I think that we've exalted choice above God. We've glorified our ability to choose. Do I appreciate the freedom we have? Absolutely, I do. I am so utterly thankful for it but it was never promised to me. It was never promised to any of us. We have the blessing of it, and I'm so thankful to God for it. But all through history, even now, many, many millions of Christians are not living with the choice that we have, and yet we exalt it as the highest principle. Are you actually elevating choice above the worship of Jesus? We exalt freedom and independence, like I've mentioned. Independence is not a scriptural idea. Interdependence is. Dependence on God is. We exalt ourselves over our creator. We exalt our ability to define life, sexuality, gender, you name it and we exalt power and violence. I've been thinking more about this, and this is no different than the Roman culture that John is writing to. They were obsessed with power, sex, violence. And in addition to the things we mentioned last week, our culture has pumped out this, uh, this, this glorification of excessive violence. It's in the video games that we produce, that have captured millions, tens of millions of young men and women with this idea that violence and power through violence is something to be uh, glorified. It's undermining the work and the purposes of Jesus. Are you in your life, if you would just take a moment and I just actually want you to close your eyes for a brief moment. 
And I wanna just ask Holy Spirit in the way that you do, that you would bring conviction to each one of us in a personal and unique way. But I want you just uh, in your own a conversation to Jesus, you, just under your breath, you don't have to do it loud. Just say, Holy Spirit, have I exalted anything above Jesus in my life? And if so, would you reveal it to me? If something has come to mind, a situation or a person or a pattern of thinking or rationalizing in your own mind, I want to invite you just as if he's brought something to mind, I want to invite you just to quietly before him say, Jesus, I surrender this to you. I'm sorry for giving this a place of prominence in my own thinking, in my own logic, in the way that I see the world around me and I lay it down before you. Father, there's probably a hundred of these for each one of us every day. And I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your patience with us, your compassion and your kindness. But what we need is an apocalypse today of those things that have actually unseated Jesus from the throne of our life. Those ideas that we've bought into from the world systems around us that actually oppose the truth. We need your grace. We wanna be people who see you for who you are, God. Amen. Moving on to chapter five here. When these uh, living beings are in worship, they lay their crowns. This crown is a symbol of authority, of rulership, and these powerful, majestic, spiritual, but very real sentient beings lay down, willingly surrender their authority and their rule to Jesus. They willingly submit to him as Lord over their lives. We move on to this scene with this scroll that is presented to the one who sits on the throne. And again, uh, we are just always sort of speculating in the dark a little bit. There's many, um, many ideas of what that scroll is, but I think the most... Uh, the one I want to leave with you is that this is a scroll of history, of all of the plans and purposes of God from all history. Everything that has taken place, everything that is taking place, and everything that will take place. It's the sum total of God's plan, his kingdom plan for all of life, all of your life, all of the empires and cultures of the world. And what's being asked is who has the authority? Here's the question from the angel. Who has the authority to begin to enact the purposes of God on the earth? And at first it seems like there's no one there 
who can. There's no one there that is trustworthy enough that carries the authority of God in such a measure that they can be the one to initiate and steward the purposes and plans of God on the earth. And John begins to weep. And then an angel says to him, look again, behold. He says, this angel says, or one of the elders says to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I wanna just bring something to your attention. We won't have time to get into this. But when the angels, elders, when the spiritual people, let's call them, are the ones talking, they're giving us the view of reality from heaven's perspective. So when this angel says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's looking at Jesus in his spiritual reality as one who has all authority and power. Again, upstairs, downstairs. We're getting an upstairs look. Jesus has all authority and power. No one can contest him. That's what this image of the lion of the tribe of Judah is referencing. It has references to Old Testament stuff. We don't have time to get in there. But from heaven's perspective, the upstairs one, there is one who cannot be challenged or contested. And he's the one who has the authority to open the seals and to begin to enact, begin to inaugurate the purposes of God for all of human history, every empire, every era, every king, every prince, every ruler, every one of us sitting here today are under the leadership and the authority of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And no one can contest him, but look what happens. When John actually looks, it says this, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. John doesn't see a lion. John sees a lamb. John now, speaking from the human perspective, is looking at the lamb of God. And literally in the text in the Greek, it is little lamb. No power, no authority, no strength in and of himself. Jesus as a man, Jesus was fully God, fully man. Jesus as a man did not come in power and strength. He came in gentleness, in humility, in brokenness, in surrender, in dependence on God. And he gave his life as an offering and a sacrifice. Jesus didn't come as the lion of the tribe of Judah in the natural. Natural. And this is where we are twisted up and turned around. Because we think that what God, what it means to walk in spiritual authority is to exert power and influence on the earth today. It's to stake our ground and hold it. It's to fight for the things that we want and it's good to go after the things we want. But the way that we fight, the way that we exert authority, the way that we influence is not the way of power, it's the way of surrender and death. So many of us have been so twisted because we have this, like I grew up with G.I. Joe and all of that good stuff. 
Airwolf, I, who remembers Airwolf? Yeah, I, I, I actually took my kids to YouTube last week and I'm like, you gotta see Airwolf. If you like helicopters, Airwolf is the best, right? A-Team, Airwolf, like you name it. Every James Bond, the born identity. I love all of that stuff. And I have imagined my Christian life as being one of power and authority and in my daydreaming and in my nightly dreaming too, sometimes those are even better. I'm the one who's like, no devil, you do this and I'm gonna stand in authority and right? Take that, you know? Like Andrew's walking onto the scene here, you know? It's just in my dreams. I know it's not reality. <laughs> Rochelle reminds me of that every day. <laughs> but we've been twisted up and turned around because we have this idea that Jesus was a SEAL team member, right? He might've been buff, but the exercise of real spiritual authority and power comes through gentleness, through humility, through surrender, the way of the kingdom is not I'm going to overpower you with my strength, my intellect. I'm not gonna shout you down. I'm not gonna demean you or criticize you. I'm not going to ridicule you. I'm not going to undermine your respect. I'm not gonna treat you as less than me. I'm gonna to come to you with gentleness and humility and brokenness and dependence and surrender. See, our problem is that we've messed things up and our church in, in the world, but in the West does not walk with any spiritual authority because we've mistaken what spiritual authority really means and where it comes from. The way of the kingdom is suffering. I'm sorry to tell you that. Well, what Jesus is doing as he's talking to these churches who are undergoing real persecution, real trial, real hardship, some of them, Jesus is saying, are going to die for their faith. What Jesus is saying is, I am in the middle of the throne. I am in the very center of it. I have all authority and power. And yes, in spiritual places, I am the line of the tribe of Judah. But the way of the kingdom is not the avoidance of suffering. It's not walking in power over suffering. It's not crushing it. It's not dying underneath it. It's walking through it. And what Jesus is saying to John and what Jesus is saying to us is the way of the kingdom, is not the avoidance of suffering or pain. It's walking through it with the one who's already gone ahead of us. I wanna say this so, so, so gently. I've been processing this. I've had my good days and bad days with this. What concerns me about the body right now, big, body, I don't know, anyway, the body, the church, the big C church, especially in the West, I feel like we're preaching a gospel of run and hide, move to Florida, move to Texas, get away from it. And I don't disparage people who do. We have great friends who have moved, actually. Here's my tension, and I'm just being very vulnerable and honest with you. 
It doesn't matter who comes into power in the prime minister's seat next or in the governorship of a certain state next. Are we teaching our generation and our kids to avoid pain, to avoid inconvenience, to avoid the stuff going on? Or are we teaching them to follow the way of the lamb? This is a hard, this is like, I'm just saying in my own life, this tension is like, it's real. Because like you, I, I don't, my choice is not to feel like our democracy is crumbling all around and rights and freedoms are being stripped. And like, I, my choice is not that I like that. I don't like it any more than anyone. But this reminds us, this book of Revelation reminds us that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. And that the way of the kingdom is actually through suffering and through death and denying yourself that we actually walk in power and authority on the earth. I think there's a great challenge and critique for us today. If you move to Florida next week, I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm not, like, that's not the issue. The issue to me is who is leading our life. The way of Jesus we're being shown is the way of the cross. And I feel like every one of those issues brought up last week in the churches, they're actually found, their solution is found in the suffering lamb not their own concept of how to work themselves out of the trouble that they're in. Jesus didn't come to take away your suffering. He never promises that in scripture, not once. He came to walk with you through it. And this is the great promise of scripture, that you are not alone. He will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said to his disciples, Suffering is coming for you, but I am with you even to the end of the age. It doesn't matter how far that suffering goes. I will be walking with you. And the call of Jesus to us today is as much as I personally want to avoid any pain or hardship, any inconvenience, any frustration, as much as I, in some very real ways, am scared for the world my children are growing up in, the way of Jesus is not the avoidance of that. You're gonna be moving all of your life if that's your strategy, the way of Jesus is, God, I, I need you. I, I, I can't make my way through this without you. Would you walk through the suffering and the pain with me? What we see in Revelation is the way to victory is always through the cross. There's no way around the cross. What did Satan tempt Jesus with in the garden? Not in the garden, in the desert. He said, I have all the kingdoms of the earth and I'll give them to you if you want them. Just bow down to me. What was he doing? He was testing Jesus. He was testing him to say, you can have what the father promised you and you don't even need to experience pain in order to get it. The, the horror of the torture, you don't need it, Jesus. You, I'm giving you the secret bypass around that. 
And Jesus sees through that. And in that moment, he's saying, no, it is obedience to the Father that precedes everything in my life. Not my desire to live without pain. The slain lamb is the way for the church and for us. And I'm not saying these things to condemn you. I'm saying them as one who's walking through this period in history with you. My call to you, as it is to me, is to come back to Jesus, to come back to him as the governing person of your life. My call to us as a community is as best we can to teach our kids and our families what it means to walk with Jesus through suffering, not around it. Lastly, we're told about the prayers of the saints. And this comes and brings to light another key principle in this book, and we're gonna talk about it more, that your prayer life matters. Here we are introduced to the reality that your prayers and my prayers affect things in heavenly places, which then affect things on the earth. This is a huge theme in Revelation. Prayer matters. And I want to just encourage you today, if you're discouraged, if you're tired, if you feel like you just want to pack it in and give up, you're tired of praying the same thing over and over, you're tired of you know, feeling like a punching bag for life and for the devil and all of this stuff, you're tired of feeling like you just pray and pray and pray and nothing happens. What we are reminded of by this, what Jesus himself is reminding the church of, because they're praying, and stuff's getting real. And they're going, where are you, God? Like, you just rose from the dead like 30 years ago. Is your power gone already? Have you abandoned us already? And what Jesus is reminding them is that their prayers have power and significance in heavenly places. And we're going to see later on where those prayers are then joined with the incense of the altar before the throne and poured back down onto the earth with the power of God. Your prayer life matters. I want to implore you, do not give up in your prayer life. Do not give in. Don't buy the enemy's lie that God isn't listening, that he's, he, he could care less about you. He is listening. I want to just invite Liz to come back, and I want to invite you to stand. I think at some point here, I'd love to do a bit of a live Q&A. If you have questions or you just want to vent, that's okay too. If you have questions, uh, you can just email them to me, andrew at mp.church. But I, I'd love at a, a point or two during this series to just talk together, just have discussion here. Could be a bit dangerous, but that's okay. Brenda will answer all the hard ones. So, um, but I want to just, I want to just invite you this morning. Again, 
just to close your eyes. And I want to just ask Holy Spirit in the way that you know how and the way that you do for each person present here that you, even in their imagination right now, would give them a very real apocalypse of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain in the center of the throne room, in the very center of the control room of the universe, in the very middle of the place of ultimate reality. And I want you, I want to invite you just to ask Jesus this morning, is there a way, Jesus, and you can literally just say this to him, you can, in your own words, is there a way, Jesus, that I have rejected the way of the Lamb? Is there a way, Jesus, where we've bought into the narrative of our culture more than the narrative of the kingdom? Are there patterns of thinking in us that are not consistent with the way of the lamb who was slain? In our bravado, power-hungry, sadistic, lustful, pleasure-centered culture, Jesus, have we, have we attuned our lives more to the narrative of the world around us? Because we're scared right now. We're uneasy right now. We're lacking confidence right now in the things that we've always trusted. We don't even know what our neighbors really think. We're scared to engage in conversation about a whole host of topics right now. We're not sure because the ground under us is shifting. And so Jesus, have we in that moment, in the, in the tension, in the angst of our heart, have we, have we invited and provoked the narrative of our culture more than the narrative of scripture. Because we want to turn back to you, Jesus. And so I just ask Holy Spirit that you would bring specific and real confrontation and conviction to us today. Would you expose the attitudes of our heart? even if we don't say them out loud, the things we're thinking and dwelling on, the anger and the impatience and the hatred and the division and the brokenness and our anxiety and our fear, would you expose them, Jesus? just to notice this morning. It's just as your eyes are closed, as you're with Jesus still, his posture towards you is not one of antagonism or 
He's not frustrated with you. He's not disgusted by you. He's not upset with you. His invitation is to come to Him. He's gentle and lowly, humble and kind. And in Him and only Him, you will find rest for your soul. Jesus, we are today acknowledging uh, that it's hard right now to keep our eyes on you. But we need to, we need to be reminded that you are in the middle of the throne, unshakable, undescribable, and totally steady and trustworthy. And your church, we need you today. As families, we need you. It is scary out there. We need you, Jesus. Teach us the way of the Lamb. And in doing so, would you teach us to walk in greater measures of actual spiritual authority in our families and in our lives? Would we be men and women who possess in us literally the spirit of the living God who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? In spiritual places, would you call us? Would you call us to be lions and lionesses for your kingdom? But in our families, Father, I pray for gentleness. I pray for forgiveness. I pray, Father, for peace and reconciliation. Jesus, we're inviting you to turn us, just take us by the shoulders even right now and redirect us to follow you in everything we're faced with today and this week. Would we have our eyes on the lamb who was slain, but is enthroned in the center of all reality? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that may have been a little bit spicy for some of you, um, as I have said through this whole uh, series. I have no intention to intentionally offend anyone, although I recognize that may happen given the nature of some of the things we're talking about and also just the reality that Revelation as a book has been so widely interpreted through the years. I just wanted to make a couple of uh, clarifying statements, even as I have uh, just thought through things since I preached this uh, 24 hours ago. Uh, first one, in my uh, description, my, my exhortation that the way of the kingdom is the way of the lamb, I want to be clear, what I do not mean is that the way of the lamb is the way of the doormat. I'm not in any way suggesting that um, 
Christians and following Jesus means you just become a doormat for people. Jesus wasn't a doormat. What I am suggesting is as we engage in confrontation over the things uh, in our life that are taking place now, uh, whether they're political, um, socioeconomic, whether they are related to uh, human sexuality, violence, uh, gun debates, all kinds of these things. I'm not, I don't want to open up any cans right now, but as we engage in these things, the way of the lamb is to engage in them with gentleness, with compassion, with kindness, with respect, not, um, not with um, this sort of uh, idea of coming with power and of dismantling someone else, of putting them in their place, of uh, destroying them with our arguments and our logic, of demeaning them. So as followers of Jesus, if our confrontational methodology involves tearing someone down or belittling them or name calling, or um, just getting, um, provoking them for the sake of provoking them, antagonizing as a way of sport, so to speak, then um, I think we're not actually walking in the way of the lamb. The way of the lamb is evidenced in the fruit of the spirit. So I'm not suggesting we be doormats. I'm suggesting that when we confront stuff going on in the world around us, that we do it through uh, the fruit of the Spirit, through gentleness, that we are not um, uh, engaging in argument for argument's sake. Uh, Scripture and the writing of Paul is actually really clear that that's not a godly thing to do, to just provoke people and belittle them and shout them down and name call them and all kinds of things like that. So I just wanted to clarify that the way of the lamb, the way of submission and surrender and suffering and the way of the kingdom in this way is not being a doormat, but it's actually engaging in confrontation through the character of Jesus, through the um, fruit of the spirit. And if that's not in evident, uh, or if that's not uh, manifesting itself, then we actually need some corrective work from the Holy Spirit. So we can engage in vigorous dialogue and vigorous confrontation, but the way that we engage, the character through which we engage is vital. And um, so that's just like a, um, a clarifying thing that I wanted to just say. Secondly, if you've listened to this and you're a friend who has moved to Florida or Texas, I love you. I'm not trying to uh, condemn or shame or disparage those it, people who have, who whom I love, who've uh, done that in any way. What I do want to do and what I was attempting to do is just be really honest about the struggle that I have for myself even. Um, as I'm raising uh, boys in this environment who are in junior high and in grade school, and as I, I'm trying to pastor my own family and parent my own family and walk with the church, I am just trying to identify some things that I myself am wrestling with and some things that I have been challenged with and confronted by the Spirit in my own life as it relates to 
um, what it means to walk through persecution and suffering and marginalization in culture with Jesus. And again, I like, I will just, I'm sticking by sort of my assessment that in scripture, we are never promised freedom from suffering. We are never promised political freedom. We are never promised any of these things. And we have been blessed to have those things. I'm so thankful for that. We have been truly blessed. But I think if you are a North American specifically or Western European Christian who's been living in the last century, we are living in uh, unusual circumstances that would not be indicative of the norm for followers of Jesus globally, even presently, or globally historically. And so I wanna make sure for myself and my kids and the church that I'm a part of, that we are seeing these things for what they are. I also wanna make one last uh, statement. I made a reference in my message to, uh, and I think I said, Jesus didn't come to make America great again. And I believe that to be true. That's not a political uh, statement to or for, um, for or against um, any political party, especially in the United States or in Canada. But just again, what I am highlighting there is that Jesus didn't come uh, to, to save our countries per se. He doesn't come to establish an empire. He came to bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. Jesus is not in the business of, um, of, of uh, you know, uh, bringing greatness to empires in any way. And um, so I, I just want to clarify that we can get a little bit too cozy in some of uh, these things. And I want to challenge that gently. I want to confront that gently and um, just invite you into that, invite you to reflect on, pray about, ask the Holy Spirit to bring revelation or confrontation or conviction in any of these areas in which way have we been misguided potentially in how we view political power, governmental places of authority and kingdoms? Where is Jesus present or maybe not present in those? How is the kingdom of God different than the kingdoms of this world? And uh, I think those are good and important questions to ask. And so in all of these things, again, I'm not um, trying to intentionally provoke or antagonize. I am just simply presenting a lot of the angst that I myself have walked through in the last season. So uh, with all of that, uh, we love you. We are going to keep walking through this book. And I, I think the thing that I want to remind you and myself of this week is that this, the book of Revelation is a prophetic pastoral letter written to real people in the first century were, who were undergoing real stuff. It was written to them, but for us. And the same principles at work uh, from Jesus in communicating to this group of followers of his who were um, marginalized, who were um, under threat of persecution, who were being tortured, fed to the lions, killed, persecuted, slandered, shamed, 
uh, the same heart that was present there in the first century still is at play. And Jesus has some things that he wants to say to us, even as we experience um, even smaller but more increasing measures of these same realities in our own life. And I want to just end with this, a reminder to you that Jesus, uh, for those first century churches Jesus was writing to, uh, they had no political power and no cultural favor. And yet through them, the Holy Spirit broke out into uh, (laughs) this global work. And so I just want to encourage you with that. There's nothing wrong uh, if you are uh, feel called into politics, called into uh, different cultural settings. Uh, I'm championing you. But the church as a big C thing, the church does not need political power or cultural favor to be effective. And I just feel the Spirit of God calling us to decouple these things and recognize that the Holy Spirit worked powerfully through a small band of followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire in the first century, and they had no political power or clout, and they had no cultural favor. And I think the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize he can do the same things in us today. So uh, without preaching a further message, have an amazing week. We'll see you here next time for our fifth week in this study in the book of Revelation.